O Lord our God, ruler of all the nations, we praise you this day and we worship you. And we ask your blessing to be upon now the hearing and preaching of your word. And you would grant us grace to leave behind the troubles of the previous week and to not worry about the coming issues that we will face, but that we would focus on you and you would grant us grace as we learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we began to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, we've been here for a number of months, came upon that last section of Matthew 7, where Jesus spoke of the two builders. You can call it, if you like, the parable of the two builders. And each one of us will be one of those builders. We will either build our life on the foundation of Christ and his teachings, or we will build our life upon something else. It doesn't really matter what else it is. It doesn't matter if it's money. It doesn't matter if it's political power. It doesn't matter if it's military power. It doesn't matter if it's music. It doesn't matter if it's anything other than Christ. Those are the two foundations, Christ or something else. And you might recall that Christ says that he likens the person who hears his words and builds his life or her life upon the foundation of those words, his teachings. That that person will be like a builder who builds his house upon a foundation of a rock. And when the storms come, the house stood because it was built on a good foundation. But the other person who built their lives upon a foundation other than Christ, when the storms come, and the implication is that the storms will come, that when the storms come, that that house will crumble, that that house will fall, because it was built on a weak foundation, a foundation of sand. And I challenged you last week to ask yourself what you actually wanted to do. If you wanted to build your life upon the foundation of Christ, or on the foundation of something else. And Jesus says very remarkable things there. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, whoever hears them. Now the Sermon on the Mount is not that long. But I'd like us to look at a couple of things that Jesus actually said as a little way of review in that Sermon on the Mount. What did he actually say? A lot of people think Jesus has said a lot of things. And a lot of people think that he hasn't said a lot of other things. And that's actually more the case. Almost everybody in our society, because we've lived with 2,000 years of Christian history, and from the founding of our republic, the Bible for a long time was used in public schools, some things are just common knowledge. People say, well, I know Jesus said that. Judge not lest you be judged. Most people will know that one. Judge not lest you be judged. Jesus said that. What else did he say? There are a lot of things that Jesus said that will shock most modern people, and many even in the church, when we realize the demands he places upon us. Now, each of us has demands upon us, don't we? (laughs) Especially during this um, season that should be a season of repose. Advent, it's not Christmas yet. Alright, it's Advent, if you want to look at the church calendar. Advent is a time of preparation. 
Did you ever wonder about the, that kind of silly song, the 12 days of Christmas? Well, you know, Christmas is more than 12 days away, correct? It's a long way away. Christmas is actually a season of the church year. It's 12 days long. The season that we're in now is Advent. It's preparation. Traditionally, it was actually, hold your hat, a time of mourning. Because the king was going to come and be born in an impoverished state. Okay? If you have the eternal Son of God going to become flesh, which is a mind-boggling and humbling miracle, and to be born pitifully poor and impoverished and persecuted from day one, literally persecuted from the womb, that's not a thing to jump for joy for, is it? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's a time of mourning. But we like to celebrate so much that over the years we've turned it just into one big, long, month-long party. So that by the time Christmas actually comes, many of us will just be flat-out exhausted and we just can't wait to take down all the decorations. Just can't wait. A time of preparation when we think about the ramifications of Christ's first coming. His first coming was humble. His first coming was filled with pain. His first coming was filled with sorrow. Jesus, when he was on earth, was not the type of fellow that walked into a room and everybody started laughing. The scriptures call him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why would he be called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Well, for a number of reasons. For one thing, when he walked into a room, he knew what was in everybody's heart. When he walked into a room, he knew who hated him. Have you ever walked into a room where you kind of felt as if maybe you weren't the most welcome person in the room? It's not the greatest feeling in the world, is it? Especially when they're being nice to you and you know... You really want to stab me, don't you? You're really enjoying this? Do you think that I don't know that you're lying to me? People lied to Jesus his whole life. Could you imagine that? Being lied to your whole life. And knowing you're being lied to. Knowing that people who are feigning admiration for you are going to one day cry for your head, literally. They're not going to be mean to you at the job. They're going to kill you when you hit about age 33. Imagine that. That's what his first coming was like. And his second coming, well, that would be a whole different type of party. When he returns, he is not going to be coming as a babe on a manger. He will be coming as that king that I read about. The good news is Jesus is coming back. The bad news is, is when he does, he's not going to be in a very good mood. He's not going to be a rosy-cheeked babe in a manger. He'll be a king, according to the book of Revelation, a king coming for what? Uh, retribution? Justice? You want to be on the right side of the road when he comes back. You know how you get there? By paying attention to what he said. The first time around. Let's look at this for a minute. 
some of the demands he makes upon us. You think your children place demands upon you? And yes, believe you me, I know that they do. Children, you think that your parents place demands upon you? Yes, they do, and they have that God-given right to do so. Your boss places demands upon you. You place demands upon your employees. All of those are fluid. They change. Jesus demands. They're not options. Jesus demands are eternal. They stay the same. If Jesus says do this, he means do this from now and forevermore. The orders are not going to change. They will be the same. There's a great comfort in knowing that the rules don't change. There's no bad penalties in God's kingdom. There's no um, thinking of you know, sports now. No, uh, no referees who make bad calls and ruin a game for people. No bad calls from referees. It's always an exact call. Just randomly, let's look at one of those. Oh, this is a good one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. This is from Matthew 5, 21. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Let me just ask you something towards the end of 2000. We're getting towards the end of 2012. At some time during this last calendar year, have you ever called someone a fool? It flows off the tongue very easily, doesn't it? Maybe you didn't say fool. Maybe you said dummy. Okay? Maybe you said idiot. Maybe you said moron. There's a whole bunch of synonyms that you can use for the same thing. And what does Jesus say? You're, you're, you're in danger of what? What did he say? Hellfire. Do, do you believe that? Do you realize how, how earth-shattering that is? That just by calling people nasty names, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Now let's just think about our confession of sin every week. Think of the words that we use. And how nasty they can be. Think of the words that are used against you and how nasty they are and how, how much damage they actually do. And this isn't a call for psychotherapy. This is a call for a deep spiritual examination. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, if you say nasty words to people, you'll hurt their feelings and they'll grow up somehow with some type of emotional and psychological baggage and they're going to walk through life hurt. That's true. You will. There's people who walk around with things that have been said to them for 50 years. A teacher, a father, older brother, older sister said something wicked and it sticks with them. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't focus on the damage that we do to each other. That's a given. He focuses on the consequences of doing damage to others. And the consequences, if you fail to notice for the third time, let me repeat it, is hellfire. So 
so. With this particular saying, how do you want to build your life? Do you want to discard this saying and just say, well, you know what? He'll give me a pass. He knows I come from a family of hot tempers. And we all have hot tempers and we say things to each other and it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, Jesus doesn't really mean this. He's saying this is an exaggeration so that we'll understand that we should be nice boys and girls. No, Jesus is not in the habit of saying things in an exaggerated fashion just so we become nice boys and girls. That's not the goal. The goal of the teaching is that we'll realize, oh, man, I need to repent. I need to confess. And I need to do it an awful lot, apparently. The goal of these teachings is to constantly push us to Christ. To constantly push us to the one who never spoke in unnecessarily harsh words. Now you may be thinking, boy, he said some nasty things to people, though. That's right, he did, and every one of them was justly done. You see, when we say nasty things, nine times out of nine and a half, they are not justly done. We're doing it just because we feel mean at the time. What's another one? I'll just move down the page a little bit. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman in lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. And he's talking about this hell thing again. Sorry. I really can't avoid it. I just went down the page. I didn't pick them randomly. I didn't know which ones I was going to go for. Just looking. Just looking is enough to get you into hell. And this goes for girls as well, okay? If, if a command is given to a man, then the opposite is also given to the woman and vice versa. And if something is applicable to both genders, it is always applicable. So ladies, I don't, don't, don't think any of you are doing this, but in case you're saying, well, this isn't, he's talking to men here, he's not talking to me, it, uh, you count too. God demands absolute moral purity. Um, how are you doing with that one? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's um, impossible. Difficult. Unreasonable. I mean, this is this is kind of unreasonable, isn't it? Now, let me just let me just talk to you, ladies, for a moment since this text is at first given to men. There were no magazines 2,000 years ago. There, were no, there was no internet 2,000 years ago. If you wanted to be tempted in this way 2,000 years ago, you needed to go out and look for it. Today, your men, your sons, your nephews, even if they try to run as far as they can, the temptations are going to be foisted upon them. 
there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unless you literally turn off the electricity, don't read anything, don't leave your house, and live literally like a monk. And even then, you still have your mind. This is a very serious demand. And again, he's talking about this hellfire. Now, Jesus is talking in an exaggerated fashion with gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. You're not allowed to do that. There have been people in the ancient world and even today who do that. Who think, well, this is literal. Okay, I'm, um, my right hand's causing me to steal. I'm going to cut it off. No, that's a violation of the sixth commandment. You're not allowed to harm your own body. Jesus is using this to point out this is how serious this sin is. And he's also pointing out that if you, want to, if you want to break free from this sin, guess what, kiddos? It's going to hurt. It's going to cost you something to lay this one down. You want to walk away from this sin? You will walk away in pain. You will be tested. Imagine how much physically this would have hurt. No anesthetic. With no, no aspirin, no Tylenol, no Advil, no nothing, no electric implements. This would be brutally painful. You'd go into shock. And what he's saying is that if you want to lay this sin down, you will, your whole body will rebel against this. You will be in shock. That's how serious and deadly this sin is. <coughs> Most of us won't be tempted to physically act out of murder. The statistics show us that both genders have a very low batting average with resisting this particular temptation. And the statistics are getting more and more depressing every single day. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies... Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. The hits just keep coming. What do you want to do to people who are your enemies? Now, nah, let's not even go that far. What do you want to do to the people you love? What do you want to do to the people who are your kith and kin? What do you want to do to your best friends when they annoy you? Or what do you want to do to close family members or close friends to your own spouse? Your own, you know, the two shall become one. What do you want to do to your brothers and sisters when they actually hurt you? They're not even your enemies. What do you want to do to them? What do they want to do to you? We've all done it to a greater or lesser degree. We act like animals. We tear each other to shreds, sometimes physically. Usually if it's physically, generally speaking, it will be the boys, generally speaking. Although girls can't fight. I see some people smiling. I, girls can't fight, but I come from a family of almost all men. I only had one sister. Okay, yeah. We never, never fought her. She was too young, too cute. And she's a girl. 
So now, what about someone who really actually is your enemy? Somebody who actually hates you. Somebody who is against you and is out to harm you intentionally. They're actually an enemy. What do you want to do to them? Do you want to love them? Do you want to pray for them? Do you want to seek to do good to them? If you do, then you're doing very, very well. Again, did Jesus actually say that? Yes, he did. Now, the challenge, just take those three things. Do you want to base your life, your eternal life, on the foundation of what he's saying here? Or do you want to say, well, you know... I couldn't help but look at her. I couldn't say no. I couldn't. You know, he took the money from me. He actually put his hands on me. Okay, so he hit me once and I hit him 15 times, but I lost my temper. Do you want to do these things? Do you believe that he wants you to do these things? Now let me go even a level deeper. Do you believe that you actually have the power to do these things? Or you just say, I can't do this. So I'll just keep doing them and keep confessing them on a merry-go-round. Over and over. You stand a merry-go-round too long, what's going to happen? After the fact, you'd be really very bored. You get dizzy. You get dizzy. Here's the hope in this message, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christian, you actually have the ability, the supernatural ability to to do these things. We do. How many of us have thought, I can't do X, Y, or Z? It could be anything. I'll never be able to to finish this homework. I'll never finish this paper on time. How many college students have said, I'll never finish, I, 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 I only have two months to get the paper done. And I waited all semester. Now I have one night to do the paper. Okay, you will stay up all night until 6 a.m. typing the thing. And guess what? You got it done. You actually did it. This is harder than any term paper will ever be. But Jesus never tells us to do something that we won't actually be able to do if we will submit to his rule. You see, this goes back to his kingship. Who is your king? Are you in charge of your life? If you are, then you won't do a very good job of it. Because if you're a Christian, you're a prince. If you're a girl, you're a princess. You're not a king or a queen. You only have one king. Even if you're a prince, you still have to listen to the king. And the king is telling us, This is what I want you to do, and I will empower you to do it. That's what Jesus got at right before he went to the cross. In John 14 and 15, he's talking to the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He empowers us to, A, believe. First, he convicts us of the sin. In order to repent of the sin, the first thing you have to do is realize, oh, it's a sin. If you don't think something's wrong, you're not going to change the behavior or the thought pattern. The Holy Spirit convicts you. So when you feel lousy about the things you do, don't say, oh, that's my conscience. That's not your conscience. That's the Holy Spirit. 
working on you, cajoling you. And then the Holy Spirit actually gives you the grace to believe. And once you believe, he gives you the grace to go the extra mile and cut these things out of your life. Paul tells us similar things. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put the deeds of the flesh to death. You you know why? Because these things are trying to put you to death. It's a truism, but you either need to be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Which, where do you want to be in that fight? The conqueror or the one who's beaten down? Most of us like to be the guy winning. Girl winning. I like to be the warrior. Here's your chance. And this is no call to duty game. This is no special ops game. This is not a video game. This isn't a Hollywood movie. This is real life. This is eternal destiny. This is our chance to actually stand up and fight for our king. And when we fight for our king, we actually derive benefits to ourselves. Yes, Jesus did say these things. And others. And others. And others. I just gave you three of them. Over the next week or two, go back and review the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to challenge you. It's a very small task that by Christmas you read on your own the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a family, read it together. It's a good bonding time. It's three chapters. One chapter a week. It's not very long. And then realize that, yes, he's making these unbearable demands, but they're bearable. Don't forget what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is talking about, that yoke is his teachings. They're light if we will submit to him. And I urge you to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we look at these things and we don't think they're very light. But we trust that you will give us the grace through your spirit do just those things. In Christ's name, amen.